0: form. And here in chapter 4, we do have some parables of Jesus, and not nearly as many parables in the Gospel of Mark as there are in the other Gospels. There are only a few of them. And chapter 4 is where most of them are. We'll run into a couple later on. A parable is a story that's told as sort of a metaphor of a of a spiritual truth, something that someone wants to get across. Often by telling someone a story, it's easier to make a point than to just tell them what you were trying to say. And Jesus had a specific reason why he's so often taught in parables. It wasn't because it's more interesting or it would hold their attention. Um, as we'll see in Mark chapter four, Jesus kind of explains to the disciples why he is teaching in a parabolic way, and, uh, and that's specifically, I think, why Mark spends the time on it in chapter 4 is because this was a major way in which Jesus did teach. And so Mark takes one of the parables of Jesus, the one that's probably the most famous, the parable of the sower and the seed, and he explains how Jesus told it, specifically explaining Jesus explaining why he was speaking in parables. And then Mark goes on to record a few other parables that are all related to this same point, including one that it doesn't appear in the other Gospels. But the point that he is making in this chapter is how Jesus did what he did. And and really, we're going to see as we look through it, Jesus taught in parables because it was all about timing, Jesus had impeccable timing. He knew how to do what he needed to do, when he needed to do it, in order to bring about his desired results. And as we look through this, that'll become really apparent. But let's go ahead and look at the parable of the sower first. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was teaching by the sea, and there were so many people that Jesus got in a little boat and taught from the boat standing in the boat while people were all lined up along the seashore listening to him. And it says in verse 2, he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now that's a farmer planting seed, not a seamstress. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside. The wayside was the hard part of the dirt that hadn't been plowed around the edges. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. So some seed landed where there were rocks, and there was enough dirt there for it to sprout up. In fact, it would sprout up much quicker than it would in deep soil, but obviously then there's not enough depth of root for it to last. And he said, in verse 7, some seed fell among thorns. and The thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100-fold. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he was done. An interesting story, an interesting lesson. And you know, parables are sometimes difficult to understand, um, partly because of their form, but partly because when we hear a teaching, we want to suck every bit of life out of it we can. And a parable is really told generally just to make one major point. And so when you try to make too much out of a parable, that's when it starts to get kind of confusing. Now If you just consider this parable before Jesus gives his explanation, you look at it and basically what he's saying is when you plant seed, there are different kinds of soil that it lands on. And the effectiveness of the planting is determined by the preparation of the soil. If the soil is good and has been prepared and plowed and and is ready, then you end up bearing a lot of fruit. But if the soil isn't ready then you don't see lasting fruit come about. Now, this presents an important spiritual truth, and I I think most of us, if we just listened to that story and weren't trying too hard, we would go, oh, that makes sense, and we might be able to connect it to a lot of things within our lives. The disciples just wanted it to be handed to them. Instead of, you know how there are some people who would rather ask a question than to think? You know, you hear people ask you something and you just go, I can't believe you asked that. If you would think for 30 seconds, you probably wouldn't have to ask me that question. That's kind of the way the disciples were. They go, give us the cliff notes. Give us the short version. Don't speak to us in parables because we'll just argue over what they mean. So they came to Jesus and it says in verse 10, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve Ask him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that, and then he's quoting Isaiah 6, Seeing they may see and not perceive, And hearing they may hear and not understand, Lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Oh, thanks. That really helps. (laughs) Take what was a simple story And now it's seeing and not seeing and hearing and not hearing, and, you know, so they don't get saved. Now we really don't get it. Now we're really confused. And looking at this, it's a little disturbing. If you look at it on the surface, it almost sounds... Now, you do get the idea that he's saying, you guys who are asking me the questions, you're here, you care. There are mysteries that I'm going to reveal to you about the kingdom of God, about how God does business, in other words. And, and so, you know, that's good. But he said, the reason I speak in parables is in the same way that Isaiah 6 talked about, there's this lesson that needs to take place that there are some people who aren't ready really to hear it. And, but if we read it, it almost sounds like he's saying, I give them the lesson in parables to keep him from getting saved. And that's certainly not what he's saying. Back in Isaiah 6, what this is a quote from, God had called Isaiah to the ministry. And, you know, we're all familiar with, most of us remember hearing that God saying he wanted someone to represent him. And Isaiah stands up and says, here am I, Lord, send me. And so often that's been an appeal to people to give your life for service to Christ. Here am I, send me. But when you read that whole chapter, it's kind of weird because the Lord says to Isaiah, okay, here are you, send you. Now I want to tell you something. You're going to say things that people don't understand. You're going to share information that they aren't ready for. And there'll be a tree that grows up, and he ties it in here in a lot of ways with the seed. There's going to be a tree that grows up, but pretty much all that's going to be left is a stump. And then that stump will deteriorate, and that becomes the holy seed. That becomes that which is ultimately going to be planted, and it's going to last. So poor Isaiah is told right off the bat, Yeah, you're going to do a whole lot, and then when you're done, nobody's going to get what you're saying. And the people who think they get it are going to end up not getting it. And all that's going to be left is this rotting stump, but then something really good is going to grow out of that. Basically, what God was telling Isaiah was, don't expect immediate results. Don't expect a sudden radical response to your message. This is going to take a lot of time. And if you tell it the way I tell you to tell it, people aren't going to get it right away. It has to soak in. It's going to have to be planted and really grow. And that is really the point of his parable as well. It ties in here. But his point here is to say, when I tell parables, there's a, I have a designed reason for speaking metaphorically instead of just literally. And it's not so that people don't get saved but it's so that people will have the time for the seed to really grow and make a transforming influence on their life. And you can see as he goes through the various soils, you you can see this more clearly, but what he is saying is, I know how to get my job done. I know how to bring people to me. I know how to bring them to salvation. And it's not by just dumping all the information on them very literally. What would have happened if Jesus had just come and at his first message, he got up, let's say he's you know, 10 years old, 11 years old, and he's starting to figure out who he is. And so he just says to people, let me tell you, here's the deal. I'm gonna explain the whole thing. I came here as a man, but I was really virgin born. I'm actually God. And now I've come to earth miraculously to fulfill all the scriptures. Uh, Ultimately, they're going to kill me. I'm going to have to die, but my blood will pay for everybody's sins, and then I'll rise from the dead, and I'll go floating up into the air, and it'll be a couple thousand years, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to set up my kingdom. They would go, "Uh uh-oh, this kid's got some serious problems. And, And no one would hear that and say, oh, and... And so as a result, he takes his time and he gives people what they're ready to handle. He's teaching them some spiritual lessons and then ultimately allowing that to have its work in the same way that, well, you remember when Jesus, he said a little too much at one point and he had a reason for doing it, but he got up in front of a large crowd of people and he said, something I need to tell you. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have any part in me. If you want me, you have to eat me and drink me, you know. And it had the effect that he expected it to have almost everyone left. Now, the people who were left, a handful of disciples, he goes, okay, now you're the ones that I know are hanging with me. Is it because, and you'd think, Yeah, the disciples understood, oh, he was speaking metaphorically, he's referring to the sacrifice of his body and his blood, and later we'll have communion where we memorialize that. It's not real body and real blood, it's just crackers and juice, and, you know, no, this doesn't bother us at all. No, they were as bothered as anyone else, but when he said, aren't you guys going to split too? And Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so he ends up with this core of people who at least at that point trusted him enough that when he said something weird, they still didn't leave. And it took time to establish that kind of a relationship. Now, often we think if we share the gospel with someone, we've got to get all the information in there. And so we sit there and share with someone who's never heard about Jesus, and we give them everything beginning to end. Yeah, the earth was created in six days, and it's only this old, and all this happened, and the rapture, and this and that. And we throw all that on them, and they're like, whoa, what is this? And generally, that's not an effective way to share the gospel with someone for the first time, to give them an entire systematic theology. Usually, you start out by extending a little love to them, showing some concern, giving them a little information and seeing what they do with that. And, and that's what Jesus did always, and, and that's kind of what he's teaching them here. And so he's saying, I'm speaking with parables because if I didn't, they, w- they wouldn't get saved. If I just dumped it all on them, it would actually get in the way of them getting saved. So I'm doling it out a little at a time. And now he begins to explain the parable more in details. And by the way, as we will see, this parable isn't just about people getting saved. There's very little in the Bible that acts like the big thing is just to get people saved. Because the big thing is to get people into a relationship with God that will last for eternity. It's not just how to get them to pray a little prayer. It's not and so this parable that we often think of as being sharing the gospel, it's that's really not what it's about. It has that application. But really, as we will see, he says the seed in the parable is the word of God. Now the word of God, yes, you share the word of God and people enter into a relationship with God, but really it's not from getting the whole Bible. But for all of us, for the rest of our lives, the Word of God is being planted in our hearts. We're learning. That's how we grow. And so really what Jesus is talking about here is a principle that applies to each of us, to all of us, for the rest of our lives. So he explains, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? He goes, you guys don't get it. But let me explain one in detail. You'll see how this thing works. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. He goes, sometimes you hear the word and it just goes right over your head. It makes no impact on you at all. Somebody goes, hey, how was church Sunday? Great. Oh, what did he talk about? Uh... Oh, a lot of I I remember there was one funny story about you know but you, you just don't know it doesn't sink in now that's I'm not saying that as a bad thing sometimes it happens sometimes you just sometimes I read the Bible and I'll spend you know 45 minutes reading the Bible and then I'll what did I just read I have no idea even there are times when I'm reading the Bible out loud to Ann. and and I'm just reading the scriptures and. And she's listening, and then she'll go, what did that last verse mean? And I'll go, which, which one? Let me, let me read it again. I have no idea. I, I lost my, I was already off later in the day somewhere. And sometimes the word is this way. Now, that's not to say there's a problem with the word. That's to say that sometimes there are places in our lives that haven't been plowed, that are just hard. Satan takes advantage of those places. It happens to all of us. He goes on to say, "...these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble." The second kind of soil, the stony ground, responds really quickly If you take a seed and throw it on some rocky ground where there's some rocks where water can really pass through, a little bit of soil, it'll sprout up really quickly. But so often it sprouts up and then it gets just blown away right away whenever times get difficult because the roots haven't sunk in. And sometimes that's the way the Word is with us. We read it and immediately it's like, man, a a light flashed on and I, my whole life is going to change right now. This is it. I'll have people sometimes after I teach a Bible study and go, what you said today has changed my life. Everything's going to be different. And I often say, come and tell me 10 years from now that what I said that day changed your life. That'll show that your life has been changed. People can be moved emotionally, or suddenly you see the word and, oh, yeah and you get all excited about it, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not how lasting, healthy fruit comes about. See, the Christian life is not a sprint. Christian life is a marathon. It's hanging in there and lasting that really matters. Now, so often, we give a lot of attention to the sprinters, because that's really exciting. And if we want to do a marathon, what we do, and this happens in the Christian world a lot, There's somebody who's a brand-new Christian, and they're just on fire for the Lord. And we go, yeah, that's what we need is to have that kind of on-fire example. And so we take some celebrity who just accepted the Lord and put them up in the front, and everybody's all excited. Six months later, they're all burned out. So then we push them out of the way, and we find somebody else on fire to put up front. And we try to run a 26-mile marathon with 100-yard dash sprinters, one after the other. And some people try to live their lives that way, one big emotional experience to another. And there are some churches that you go there and you feel like, man, our church is so dead because these people are screaming, yelling, jumping up and down. They're so pumped. and, And sometimes as a pastor, you see that, you hear more of an emotional response and you go, man, we ought to be this way. This is really cool. But if you give it time, you realize that sometimes the people who are experiencing the Lord in a most lasting way aren't the ones who are yelling and screaming and jumping around about it. And you come, the older you get, you start to appreciate people who have just walked consistently with the Lord for a long time. Now, we all want to be like that brand-new on-fire person. But really, what God does generally is to work in someone's life. And, and I would encourage you to find people who you know in the church, find people who you know who have walked with God for years and they've been through trials and testings and things have been difficult and no one ever puts them up on the stage. No one ever, you know, gives them glory, but they're just consistently walking with Jesus through tough times and through good times and, and, and there's a reality there that will last. And what he is saying is, sometimes the word will cause a flash in the pan, but that flash in the pan doesn't really cut it. I know for so many years working with kids, there were some kids when they were in high school that were so on fire for the Lord. And everyone just, oh, I want my kids to be like that kid, and they're just so on fire. But I've learned to give it a few years because often the one that seems the most on fire, it doesn't last. And, and the one who seems like they're not paying any attention, you see him later. Show me somebody who, down the road, 20 years later, they're just walking with Jesus and loving their family. And, be, and you go, Isn't that what we're really looking for? Isn't that what we're wanting? But he's saying there are some people who will respond quick, but that's not where the lasting fruit lies. Now, he also says there are those who are sown among thorns, verse 18. And they're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. There are some people who, when they hear the word, yeah, they soak it in and they take it and they really desire to have a lasting relationship with the Lord. But it's amazing because in the middle of all that, something gets in the way. And often it's the very success that God gives them from doing things God's way. See, the Bible teaches that when you sow, you'll reap. And often as you walk with God, He will bless you materially. Good things will happen. You're doing things His way. You're following His principles of life. And now you start to experience some success. But so often, over time, you can become attached to the accoutrements of success, and you can become attached to material things, and somehow that comes along and chokes out the reality of a relationship with the Lord. There's nothing wrong with material blessing, but if we set our heart on it, we become distracted. And even as he says here, the desire for other things. Once you get on that treadmill of, I just want a little more, I want to multiply what I have, the deceitfulness of riches will completely choke out what God wants to do. And riches really are deceitful. Remember three or four years ago when you were thinking about how much equity you had in your house? And all those ads from people who were saying, it's really irresponsible to just let that equity sit there. You need to use your house as an ATM machine. And draw it out and get a HELOC and, you know, refinance your house. Interest rates are low. Come on, spend that money. What happened to it? It was deceitful. It fooled us. And for many of us, it was so easy to get our eyes so on it that then when it began to trickle away, we're, we don't know how to handle it. But see, it's where you end up that matters. It's the end of the story that matters. And if we start to look at things instead of saying, I'm in this for the long haul, and what really matters to me is God doing his work in my life, well, then you can have a healthy perspective. And he goes on to say in verse 20, these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60 and some 100. So he says, there are those whose hearts have been prepared, whose, who have weeded their garden from the materialism. They've cleaned up that stuff so that that can't be a distraction. They've sim- simplified their lives so there isn't much there to choke out that which happens that's good. They've sunk their roots in deep. They removed the stones from the ground. They've allowed their life to be plowed. In other words, they've been willing to let God do what he wants to do in their lives. When God is preparing the soil, it feels horrible. When he's plowing us and everything we have is being turned upside down and rotated, it feels like it's completely out of control. And yet, if we want fruitfulness... We have to allow that to happen. We can't fight it. We can't resist it. We can't tolerate anything but God's plan that's a long-term plan for our lives, and we've got to believe that it's okay for that to happen. The Bible tells us to wait on the Lord. That's the hardest thing for us to do, to wait, because His timing is so different than ours, but His timing is perfect. And what He is doing that feels like churning What he is doing that it feels like he's ripping things away from us. What he is doing that's causing us to have a net loss. He's actually removing what keeps our soil from being good ground. Good healthy ground that will ultimately bear fruit. And that's what Jesus is kind of trying to get across to them really with this parable. And if they understood the story, it would change completely how they look at their lives. He was preparing the disciples for those times when things would be yanked away from them, for those times when they would be turned upside down and rotated and crushed and the the clods in their life would be smashed and beaten up because his desire is to turn you into good soil. And sometimes it might mean that some manure gets dumped on your head in the process, but he knows what makes good soil, And so allowing that to happen and not acting like, ah, something weird's happening. This isn't right. Now, Jesus goes on to tell them the little story about the light under the basket. And he said, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed. Nor has anything been kept secret but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. He said, when you make a lamp, it's so that it will shine. Now, right now, you might not feel very shiny. Right now, it may not look like you're shining forth at all. It may seem like nothing's happening in your life. But he's saying, look, what God is doing in your life will ultimately lead to shining. What, what I am saying as I take my time to tell people stories, this isn't just stories. Give me time and the light will shine. But I can't just throw light at people who aren't ready to handle it. And so I'm going to give a little at a time. And believe me, ultimately the light's going to shine. Then he said to them, verse 24, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. In other words, why don't you listen to what I've already told you instead of looking for a bunch more? Instead of trying to... Our desire, if we are left to ourselves, we will educate ourselves so that we're a mile wide and an inch deep. But what he's saying is, When you begin to understand what I've told you, then I'll tell you some more stuff. Why don't you go back and figure out this this parable of the sower for a while before we go in any deeper. You need to dig down. This needs to become a part of your life. The more you reflect on what you understand and what you know and what you've already been taught, the more you're going to be prepared and ready for an increase in this. Then he says in verse 26, the kingdom of God, the way God does things, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, goes through his normal life, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself doesn't know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So he tells this little parable, and he he says, a guy who's going to end up having a harvest, he takes a seed and he puts it in the ground, and then he waits. And over time, that seed will grow and Fruit will come from it, and when it's time, he gets the sickle and he enjoys the harvest. But in the meantime, there's not a lot he can do with that seed because he doesn't even understand how it works. And again, in the context, the idea is, you know what? You may not understand the process. You may not know what God is doing, but trust him enough that you do what you do know to do and then let him do what he does. And ultimately, a harvest will be there. Be patient. Wait on him. Trust a process that you don't understand. How in the world can bad things happening in my life do good for me? I don't know. But I know that it does. I've hung in there long enough to see that happen. And so rather than extract the problem, I want to let it sit. I want to let it germinate. I want to let the process begin. You know, when you're a kid, you get excited about planting a seed, and you stick a seed in the ground, and you go out the next day, unlike this farmer who goes to bed and gets up, goes to bed and gets up. You go out, and it's like, I don't see anything yet. I don't think it's working. And you might even dig it up and make sure the seed's still there because you're going, oh, maybe somebody took it. You dig it up and check on it. Every day, faithfully checking on it. It'll never grow if you do that. And a lot of times, we're that way in our own walk with God. We're so analytical. We're so concerned that it's not what it ought to be. And things are happening in our lives, and we don't understand them. And what we have to do is we've planted the Word. We're doing all that He has given us to do. We want the soil to be prepared. And we've got to believe that it's going to work that he knows what he is doing, and that's what he's saying here. And then the harvest will come when that happens. And then he tells another parable, again related to this. To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it's smaller than all the seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now there are people who have written volumes on what does it mean that the birds of the air are resting in its shade. It's a parable. Don't worry about the birds in the air. The point is, hey, you plant a little tiny mustard seed and a big old mustard bush can come out. And what he's saying is, Big things can come from little things. You may not right now see and understand what God is doing, but to understand the kingdom of God, to understand how God works, you need to trust that that little seed can bring forth a large plant. That's how it works. That's a part of it. And that's his point through all of these things. And of course, for a young guy like Mark who was hyperactive... That's not easy to understand, but somehow by the time he wrote the gospel, it was starting to sink in. I wanted everything now. I wanted to be a spreader, but Jesus always was laying the groundwork to say, give me time. I have perfect timing. I know what I'm doing. Let me do my thing and you'll see. You'll get everything that you've ever dreamed of. You'll get everything that you've ever wanted. All that I want to do in your life, it'll happen. But it's farming. You know, so often, and and I think our educational system today partly is responsible for our impatience because our educational system, for the most part, you know, back in the day, there was time given to education. And... They learned that farming was a part of that. So many in an agrarian society, people understood about planting and watering, first plowing and preparing, planting, watering, and then waiting for the harvest. But since we don't do much of that anymore when we want food, we just go buy it right now. And now the educational system is so much built upon instant gratification. And so what we, instead of learning the law of the farm, we learn the law of cramming. We cram a bunch of information into a student's head. And they, okay, quick, give me the test. And you, you take the test, and then you go, oh, now I can forget it all. And most teachers nowadays, I don't know if you realize this, but most teachers nowadays will never give a comprehensive test. You take that test the first quarter, and you can completely forget that stuff for the rest of your life. You're never going to need it. When it comes up again, they'll do it all over again. You'll cram review, do it again. And so because our society does education that way, you know, back years ago, in the teacher's editions of the book, they didn't put the answers in the back. Because teachers were people who had learned the stuff and really knew it and owned it. But now, with the law of cramming, we need test keys and things like that. And then we try to live our lives that way. You know, we try to wait until the last second and we think somehow we can cram and make life happen. I don't know how many times I've had someone come in desperate because their spouse had left them. And... They had for years taken advantage of a relationship and for years never planting those things that ultimately bring forth a healthy relationship. But now the person's gone and now they want to know, how can I fix this? Dave, if you call them and get us together, I'm sure everything will be fine. You can't cram relationship. You can't cram anything that's worth anything. There's no shortcut to spiritual health and growth. There's no shortcut to heaven. This is a long road that we're on. And like anything that's beneficial, it takes real investment. It takes being willing to wait. It takes paying the price for success. And you might have been able to ace your way through school by cramming, But everything that matters in life, it takes time. And you only find this out, like in a relationship, when you learn that there are times when you invest in a relationship and you don't see immediate results. Seems like it's not working. And you just think, I don't know, this doesn't work. I need to find something else. I need another solution. But you look at people who have invested in each other's lives for a long period of time, and you go, Look at that. They've grown so comfortable with each other. They seem to love each other more and accept each other more than ever before. And many of you are in those kinds of relationships, and you know what it costs to get you there. You know how many times you almost quit, you felt like giving up, and yet you hang in there, and look what you got. But there are a whole lot of people who would like you to just give them five quick steps how, in a weekend retreat, they could have what you have. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of plowing. It takes a lot of sowing. It takes a lot of watering. But the reaping will happen if you'll hang in there. And if we don't understand that, we will never have a healthy relationship with another person, nor will we ever have a healthy relationship with the Lord. And we won't bear the lasting fruit that he wants us to bear. Jesus then in verse 33, it says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he didn't speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Guys who were really into it, he went a little deeper. But he only gave them what they could bear. God does that for us too. Is that okay? Are we willing to ask him to help us, but at the same time realize we're probably not going to ace the test? We're probably not going to have all the answers that we're in this for the long haul. We're just not ready for a lot of the things that we want right now. We couldn't handle them if he gave them to us. And he so patiently and lovingly takes his time with us. But if you're going through the plowing, it doesn't feel like there's a purpose, but there's a purpose. There's a payoff. Harvest will come. But Jesus, as he was telling him, he spoke through parables. And a lot of times you hear a parable at first and you just think, that doesn't make sense. There was a guy named John Witherspoon who's, you've probably never heard of him, but he was a pastor. and. back in the 1700s, and, and he, was the, uh, he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was also the, the president of Princeton University. John Witherspoon was there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, if I put out a poll and I ask you to name the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, there's one name that probably almost everyone would know because he signed his name really big in huge letters. And now he's in the banking industry, John Hancock. (laughs) But the story of when John Hancock signed the Declaration of Independence, it was John Witherspoon who spoke right before Hancock signed. And what had happened? Someone stood up and gave a speech, and they said, I'm afraid that our nation is not yet ripe for independence and freedom. And John Witherspoon, this pastor, got up and he said, I feel not only that we are ripe, But he said, I believe that we are in danger of rotting for the want of freedom. And at that point, John Hancock took the pen and he goes, I'm signing. (laughs) And he signed that thing. And then other people followed and now we have the nation that we have. Well, there was another time when John Hancock went to John Witherspoon's church and Witherspoon was speaking on freedom, and he used the text in John chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door, and anyone by me who enters will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And Witherspoon spoke on that text, talking about going in and out and applying it to freedom. John Hancock, after hearing that message, was heading home, and he was thinking, Witherspoon's a nut. Christianity is stupid. How, what in the world could Jesus mean by saying he's a door? And somehow by faith, you enter by the door, and that's where freedom is going to come. That's just nonsense. And he got to his home, John Hancock did, and he put his key in the door, and he opened the door. And out of there, light shone forth. His family, who he loved, was in there. Warm food on the table, a fire in the fireplace. Everything that was valuable to him was in that room. And by opening the door, it opened up. And at that moment, he said, I get it. Jesus is the door that by faith, if we receive him, we enter into that spiritual freedom that he has for us. And Hancock said at that moment, He bowed his head, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ and accepted him. Parables work that way. You hear them at first, and you go, dumb story. Why don't you tell me something substantial? But when that story becomes a part of your life, you start to see the reality at some point. It opens the door, and God knows that. Scriptures are full of parables, but you know what? There are parables all around us. The reason Jesus told parables is to show people there are lessons in nature, there are lessons in life, there are lessons that you learn from watching how people interact. If you'll open your eyes to what you see, you're going to make spiritual connections to these things and it will help your heart to be prepared to enter into true relationship and thus ultimately To bear fruit, but it's going to take time. Now, the chapter ends, and it would seem to be disconnected, but it's put in beautifully at this point. After he finished preaching, he took off in the boat. They went out onto the Sea of Galilee, and a huge storm came up. The storm was tossing the boat around. Water was coming in, and the disciples said, We're perishing. Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a pillow. And the disciples were freaking out, thinking they were going to die. And as they, it says that they said, Teacher, why don't you care that we are perishing? Sounds like us in our prayers sometimes. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. (laughs) said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, they saw the circumstance. They knew if water keeps coming in the boat, we die. But they didn't understand something greater was happening. They didn't understand that sometimes it seems like Jesus is ignoring us. Sometimes he's in the back of the boat with his head on a pillow, and we want him to understand this is an emergency But, you know, the real lesson is, if it seems like he's in the back of the boat sleeping, just curl up next to him. This must be the time to rest because he knows what he's doing. And if it seems like nothing's happening in your life right now, you're spinning your wheels, you're not getting anywhere, don't grab him and go, Master, Master, please, we're perishing. Go, cool. Doesn't seem like he's doing anything. I guess it's time for me to rest, too. Be still And know that I am God. We must wait on the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord, Isaiah said, will will renew their strength, mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. But we need to learn to wait. We need to learn to be in a boat that's being tossed around and go, cool, this is great. He doesn't think it's an emergency. It must not be. It's a roller coaster ride. And that's life. And and that's the lesson that we get here from chapter 4. You know, Ultimately, God knows how to prepare our lives and he knows how to plant seed into our lives and sometimes it doesn't work, it's okay. He has lots more seed, he has lots more word. But ultimately, let him do what he is wanting to do and you will see fruit come about. You will see success and results and everything will be worth it. Look for the parables around us and realize the rhythms of life and how things work and understand. It all works out. It's not... Nothing is ever worth panicking like people think it is. Our current economic situation... I mean, I think one good thing comes from... Well, there are a few good things that come from it. For one thing, you got congressmen actually working on the weekends. (laughs) And they're so busy all pretending like they understand the economics of our country, that they're not spending other money right now, so that's a good thing. But people are starting to go, oh, no, we could go under. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat going, don't worry. Play your games. Try to solve your problems, but I'm going to work it out. It'll be fine. Whatever happens in our country economically, in our nation economically, I'm really not worried about it. Because my hand is in, my life is in his hands. And my hand is in his hand. And he's always taking care of us. You're always going to be surrounded by chicken little trying to tell you the sky is falling. (laughs) Have some faith. Take your time. God's timing is impeccable. He knows what he's doing. He's on the throne. He's really, really good. He loves you really really a lot. It's going to be okay. But this is farming, not testing. So it's going to take time. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and Lord, for all the parables, all the stories that help us to connect with the greater reality that we're not ready to swallow at first. Lord, I thank you for the Jesus teaching. The way he did it. Lord, we're sorry. We're always in a hurry and it's not necessary. We always feel like we just have to throw everything out there and really a lot of it's more waiting than anything else. So Lord, help us to trust you and to wait on you. Help us to believe in you. And we will trust you to bring about the fruit in Jesus name. Amen. Let's all stand. You know if you're here-